Hello, I'm Casey Brazil. And I'm TJ Barczyk. And this is Work Friends. Work Friends is a podcast about business, entrepreneurship, and work. Uh, we have two topics. I'm just going to jump into mine and go first. I wanted to talk about this Nassim Talib author's idea called anti-fragile. So I'm going to start with a question for you, TJ. What do you think when I say, like, what's the opposite of fragile? <laughs> uh, unbreakable, right? Um, Bruce Willis. <laughs> Give me adjectives <laughs> so to I, describe I, I'm, Bruce Willis. I'm familiar with this book. I'm unfamiliar with the work. Um, stands, That's what I was hoping. Stands the test of time is uh, unwilling to change. So like stubborn, durable? Durable. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So that's what people usually say. And that's if you looked in like a thesaurus, it would say that the opposite of fragile is tough, durable, yeah. lasting, things like that. But what this guy argues is that's like saying the opposite of negative 10 is zero or the opposite of negative is neutral. The lack of something is something not the tough, opposite of that thing. Yeah. Exactly. So something tough like a rock Maybe like less changeable than like a vase right. that might be very fragile, but something that's the opposite of fragile should be something that kind of likes to be disturbed, to be in a chaotic state, something yeah. that that thrives in uncertainty. So I think like, in the semantic term that sounds entirely wrong. I understand what he's getting towards, but like, well, it's the, the idea is we kind of don't didn't have a word for this phenomenon and that's sure. like and that's kind of the basis for this book for a little bit like the risk averse versus uh conservative well that's related but like to get into it in a way your body is fragile right if somebody stabs yep. you you'll die but in another way your body likes things to be uncertain and unpredictable right so if you go to the gym and you do 20 push-ups your body will prepare you to do 21 push-ups, you know, the next time you go. There's, by pushing it, by testing it, you strengthen it. Another example he uses is like the evolution of a species, right? Okay. So individual members of a species may not like it when they have some horrible disease, but the species itself... Sure continues to get stronger as adverse things happen. So, you know, if you have times of plenty, maybe everybody makes it through. But then if there's a famine yeah. or a flood, the only the hardiest yeah, the individual might be fragile. The collective is less fragile because of like the process of evolution. So with that thought in mind of anti-fragile, he, he then, and this guy is Nassim Talib and the book is anti-fragile. He goes to look at individual industries and talks about industries as being strong or fragile. And one, th one thing he brings up is like, if you look at finance, if one bank fails, it's not like in evolution, right. you know, it's not like the other banks all get stronger because they get its, uh, you know, clients or whatever. Huh, they get weaker because a chink has been exposed in the finance market. And so right. when uh, Bear Stearns went down, that was bad news for Chase for JP Morgan for any number of other banks. He says he uses like another example from the business industry. I'm going to ask you a question about this, but I, I feel like it's worth kind of walking you and the listener sure. through the idea. So, restaurants on their own are notoriously fragile, right? Like, oh, yeah, the average one closes within two years or something like that, more than half, something like that. Exactly. Restaurants open <clears throat> and close very frequently, but as a whole, 
the restaurant industry is strong <laughs> because, yeah. yeah, if you think about like Lincoln Avenue in Chicago, Lincoln and Webster say, there's probably 10 bars on that street. If one of them closes, that doesn't signal to the bar patrons, oh, this is a weak place that you shouldn't <laughs> go. It just means that you have a lot of switching from right. instead of Kelsey's, I'll go to Kincaid's. They sound like they're exactly the same place. Yeah. you know. With that in mind, with that kind of background of fragile versus anti-fragile, we've both worked a lot in the food industry. Do you think that the food industry is fragile or anti-fragile? Well, my gut says anti-fragile because people eat, right? Like, this is a simple, <laughs> right? Like, food isn't going away. Yes. Uh, yeah. Unless we get to, right, the, the not doomsday scenario, but, like, is, like, we create the pills that people can take that mm-hmm. make them survive that don't require all the fats and, like, people like to indulge. So, yeah, based on that, the, the gut says anti-fragile. Now, there's there's pieces of it, right, the... The retail industry, right, mm-hmm. as Amazon and delivery methods and blue aprons of the world get mm-hmm. stronger, theoretically they're taking away from grocery stores. Yeah, but that's kind of evolution. That's not necessarily yeah. weakness. Right, but it just depends on what part you're talking about. But mm-hmm. even the grocery store industry, the, the newest report says they're only going to lose 15% of the sales in the next 15 years. So mm. even like people, if you ask the CEO of Kroger, I've been in a meeting where this happens, CEO of Kroger, like what's your, what keeps you up at night? And she says Amazon. She's worried about fifteen percent of her sales, mm-hmm. which but is huge. Hundreds of jobs, hundreds of millions, but it's of dollars, not the jobs. end of Kroger. But yeah, any like if your biggest fear is fifteen percent of your sales, you're pretty anti-fragile. Yeah. Well, so I, w- I was trying to think about this. One thing I think that might be making the food industry more fragile is the way that more and more businesses are collecting into fewer and fewer owners. Consolidation. Consolidation. Is the biggest fear of so many industries. Absolutely. So I think that, you know, like there used to be a world where there were a lot of mid-level players and now there's less and less. And that very much mirrors the finance industry where... Consolidation is in most yeah. industries. I mean, pick your industry. You look at yeah. the bars in Chicago. There's three companies that own over half of them. And that makes them less anti-fragile as an industry. Right. Now, probably as an individual, it's stronger because if you're craft and one of like all of a sudden people hate craft singles, even if that happens, craft is probably able to weather that storm because they have all these other assets and they can be, you know, they can lean on something else. But as an industry overall, it seems like more and more the industry is all tied to itself so that when something bad happens to one, it has a negative effect across the board. I will give you one other way, and this is kind of a devil's advocate, but I I think there's something to it. Food trends are often, like, sometimes they affect one company more than another, right? So, like, if you have something like paleo, right? If you're meat, that's good for you. If you're bread, that's bad for you. But if you have a trend like people are moving away from processed foods and want to cook at home and make their own, that's negative industry-wide. It's not like, oh, that's good for Nestle and bad for Kraft. It's often in the same part of the store. I mean, something we we always used to deal with was... Things like the, the the frozen lunches, right? The healthy choice and the I mean, Russell Stover's meals, like they are down thirty percent or fifteen percent, twenty year over mm. years, like consistently. That's huge. They're buying frozen vegetable companies. They're buying other frozen items that are generally in the doors next door to them, in order to say, hey, if we're gonna lose space in the store, we'd rather give it to something we own that's growing. It's it's almost more about space than it is about 
uh, counter counter brands or things like that. Totally. And that's and that goes back to that thing we're talking about where individual companies are more robust, you know, because they own these various ath- assets. But perhaps like for the industry as a whole, the best thing is quick innovation, fail fast, companies are born and die, and you have these little shocks as opposed to cataclysmic shocks. Well, same thing in, like in finance, right? They always say, you know, you know, have have a bunch of different stocks, right? That way, if one goes down, the other one goes up. And same same thing with brands. Same thing mm-hmm. is if one of your brands is potentially going down, have something bet against it almost. Totally. A hedge. Well, let me let me go back to your point of people will always eat, which is true. But the amount of money people spend on food is absolutely variable and very different sure. from country to country. And the amount of money that people spend on processed foods. And when we say the food industry, we're not talking about restaurants. We're talking about food that you buy in a grocery store on Amazon or something like that. I mean, there is variability, and processed foods have grown a bunch. Does that mean that they're necessarily vulnerable? Or maybe is that growth like a sign that, like, this is where the future is, people will continue to, you know, have less time, want to eat faster, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Right, Convenience will, in my opinion, continue to grow, whether that's moving towards meals that take less time to cook that are pre-assembled. Um, I think you already see that in a lot of things like people making stir-fry kits, right? You used to have to buy mm-hmm. the vegetables and the meat and things like yep. that together. So convenience forever has driven the market. That, that's why the growth of restaurants, the growth of fast food has come at the expense of the home-cooked meal. And convenience being popular is almost always good news for the food industry because you can't mark up an apple the way you can mark up a stir-fry kit or exactly, pick your example. Exactly, And you see in stores, right, they're all adding buffet lines. They're all adding um, at the front the little refrigerated by pre-made sandwiches things. So there's, there's ways the f- retail food industry is counteracting the move towards convenience by just adapting. I mean, I think that will be good news and that will continue to, you know, people will continue to be excited about that. What I wonder is, as there are less and less companies, is it going to get, it's necessarily going to get harder and harder to break in? And is that going to make it harder and harder to innovate so that when someone finally does do any kind of innovation, (laughs) boom, you wipe out all of these jobs? That's, that's interesting. I mean, you see it all the time, right? Uh, the consolidation of the food industry has driven out innovation. That, that's clearly happening. That's also what allowed a little bit of like the whole foods of the world to succeed hmm. because they branded themselves as like, we take little brands and we do all these sort of things. And even like a Trader Joe's and stuff like that, there was, there was a little bit of, right? If, it's harder to get into Walmart as a startup brand than it used to be because the big guys had so much power and so much leverage and all Absolutely. that sort of stuff. Money, period. Money, period, marketing dollars, all that sort of stuff. And their their product cycles are much longer than they used to be. They're 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 a, a, right, a bigger ship is hard to turn. Yes, there's less innovation than there used to be, but also the innovation cycles have changed. So I I don't I guess I don't know where you're trying to go with this, but like there there's still ways for a startup to get created. It's just harder than it used to be. I mean, where I'm trying to go with this is I, I'm <laughs> honestly curious what you think, because I think anything that makes it harder for there to be small companies, small players, startups is on net something that's destabilizing. 
right? So it yes. might look more stable long-term because you've slowed down innovation, but it means when something breaks, it breaks more catastrophically. You store up this weakness so that when something finally breaks through, it's a bigger problem. <laughs> right. From the evolutionary standpoint, right, if we've become, I don't know, as an industry, right, built up all the same genetic code, right, when one virus comes in, like whether that virus is, uh, you know, a new startup or it's a... Uh, we all developed an allergy to gluten, like whatever it may be. Totally. And it's almost impossible for us to well, speculate, yeah, right? That will be right. Uh, like when, um, right. Mad cow was like tipping and those sort of things. And like in England, something like 60% of the beef had horse meat in it and things like that. You're like, all of our beef comes from the same spot. What, what like this affects everything. Right? Yeah. That's, that's a great example because it's like, it shows you the folly of trying to predict the future. If you were to tell me, like, people will try to eat healthier or people will move to natural brands, I'd be like, okay, I can see how you make an argument for that. But if you're going to tell me, oh, there's going to be horse in the beef and that's going to affect the industry, no, you couldn't have <laughs> predicted that. No one yeah. could have. Like, And if you did, you wouldn't have been able to, like you say, steer the ship. This uh, conversation kind of went toward food, and I think it's because that's the direction I pushed it. That's our particular background. Yep. But it's a fascinating idea, and we may, I may want to bring it back and so, revisit yeah, it. Well, the interesting thing is, right, businessman in me says, hey, if this is the, I don't know what to call it, the part of the industry that makes it fragile, that means there's an opportunity, right? That means that there's if one failure or if one startup said we're going to almost go against that they're going to fail a lot but they're going to if the industry is bad at innovating yeah then there's an opportunity for someone to do innovation correctly i see your logic and i think that that is in fact correct i would say that you know well hey that's great for one individual company it's bad for the correct. industry overall yeah. and it's bad for the consumers of that food because if if you, we get down to saying, well, there's three important food companies and then some upstart breaks two of them and now there's only two, <laughs> like that's not sure. a good outcome either. Um, but I think you are right that in times when it's particularly lean and times of recession, the companies that make it out sometimes are a little right, more battle tested. That's the business cycle of all businesses, yeah. right? They, they tend to consolidate, something goes wrong and it breaks it and it sucks for like, 10 years, but it becomes better after that 10 years is over. So it depends on when that, right, that, that mortgage collapse happens. Being aware of that cycle and trying to fight it, trying to do your regulation in such a way where you make it easier for there to be more, for, for risks to be diversified, to have many small falls and not one cataclysm is always going to be good. And I'll take, I'll give you the one example he provides from the book. He says, dictatorships often look really strong because they don't brook disagreement. There's not a lot of changeover. You have one thing. When your dictatorship falls, it falls really hard, right? Because <laughs> yeah. that's that's a perfectly fragile system, you know, like yeah. when... Anything consolidated can be a benefit. Exactly. If you like this show, please, please tell your friends about it. If anybody has ever heard about this show, it's almost certainly through word of mouth. So please share the podcast on your social media uh, and consider writing us a review on iTunes. If you would like to support us with your dollar dollar bills, which we love so much, 
please visit our website, workfriendspodcast.com. There you will find an Amazon affiliate link. If you click on this link, anything you buy on Amazon, we get a little kickback from, uh, and we would appreciate that a great deal. TJ, let me kick it over to you. What is your topic for the week? Yeah, uh, it's something uh, I, I have a bunch of work conversations about. So uh, I'll start off with a story. My last company, we Christmas party, we do work superlatives, right? You know, best dressed, whatever mm-hmm, it is, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Uh, my award that I won was most likely to quit their job tomorrow based on some half-schemed idea. She's like, yeah, that, that's me. That's, that sounds about right. There's, there's a lot of talk in the industry, especially in startup culture, about, like, the entrepreneur versus the entrepreneur, right? We all have great ideas. Yep. Ideas are, you know, a, whatever, a penny a million. I don't, there's, there's, you have to know the hackneyed phrase for something like that. Penny a million. I think you mean dime a dozen. Dime a dozen. Penny. Oh, penny a million. You've just, you take <laughs> just it to the next. Mistakes. All right. Good. <laughs> um, yeah, you get a penny for every million ideas. Whatever. Um, Execution is everything, right? Mm-hmm. And I am clearly in that kind of entrepreneur versus entrepreneur side of the same coin, uh, to bring it back to the penny analogy. You're harsh on yourself. Well, I haven't, I haven't created anything. I haven't made a dollar from something I've created. Maybe. Right? I've well, helped a lot of small companies get from you know, a million dollars to $10 million, right? I, I'm good at that second step. Create it. I've never, like, even in school, I wasn't the creative guy. I was a guy like you have an idea. Let's let's I can make that happen. I'm Even the, on this very podcast, very podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not I'm not the I'm not the idea guy. That being said, I wish I was mm. right. So there's two ways for me to go about this. I either go break myself trying to like create the next idea, or I take someone else's idea and I just execute on it better than them. Totally right. That's a real thing. <laughs> it's a real. It's all, I mean right. The so many stories about uh, some of the people we. You know, idolize the most did not create the thing that they are known for creating totally like oreo is a knockoff of uh i forget the name of the cookie but there was a chocolate sandwich cookie that oh, existed yeah. hydrox yeah that existed before oreo oreo was like that's a good idea and then they beat the pants out of them well, even like tesla right and even like go, oh, go sure. old school um the guy who invented the the the, the movie film um i forget his name edison well, he didn't. That's the oh. point. That's the point. Is that gotcha. it wasn't him. Um, but yeah, all these they a lot of guys in the old days. It was whoever patented it first. Mm-hmm. Uh, even so, like, a lot of people invented things that did not patent them. Mm. Um, and there's that sort of trick of it. But it's bringing the actual idea to life, not just having it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, to bring this kind of back to a discussion, so you you work for yourself, and like, have you ever thought of trying to? create an actual company out of it, whether that was bringing other people on board or creating a website, or has there ever been, have you ever thought about actually starting a business? Absolutely. I think if you listen to this podcast and you like it, probably you have done exactly what TJ is yeah. describing. I, um, I think it's very common. Like, I think there's most of the people in the world have had a great idea. I was talking to my stepdad the other day and he's like, I, I want to sell my barbecue sauce. Can you help me do that? My answer was, here's the deal. Put 50 in jars, walk to the mall parking lot. If you can sell those 50 jars in four hours, I can sell it. <laughs> if you can't, I can't. I can kind of made up numbers, right? But like, yeah. he thinks he can because but he's like, everyone of, tells me that you love yeah, it. Like, you need a proof of concept. Yeah, that you yeah. haven't actually sold anything. Totally. Everybody tells you they love your band. Yeah. Who's signing you to their label? 
Have As you ever a writer, tried to start something? So let me let me put this in the context of something that I do every day. So as a writer, I have an Excel document that probably has an a th- between a hundred and a thousand articles that I would like to write, and I'm confident that if I stopped trying to think of new things, <laughs> and you know, like I could, in a hypothetical world where like my creativity that part of my mind shut down i could write all 200 of those articles right in a row but i don't and it is a source of a great deal of guilt in me that i'm often like i know what i could be doing it's just a question of bringing it to life i think some of the great ideas for businesses or great articles that we don't write don't get written for a reason you you're confident enough in your barbecue sauce to bring it to a friend's house to serve it at a meal but you're not confident enough to put ten thousand dollars behind it or you know spend a day being made a fool of when you can't sell a single jar or something like that but i guess my point is most businesses don't need ten thousand dollars to get started yeah right like you're right you could theoretically create a blog get friends to write for it Mm -hmm. split the ad money that costs a hundred bucks to get started, right? Like that costs totally. next to nothing. But like we talked about in the first podcast, the the you know home delivery website thing. There's no re- there's there's ways to test that out that I yeah. haven't done that don't have a high cost of. Input. You could do it on a small scale, and what it would cost would be a little bit of money and a lot of your life uh, time and a lot of your you know reputation. And because that's obviously it might be a failed I, I think project. More than reputation, it's the time piece, right? Because Anyone who listens to like the, you know the the big entrepreneur bloggers or whatever like like Gary Vaynerchuk right he'll mm. people people call him be like what do I need to do to start my business and he'll be like well stop watching TV if you took the three hours a day you watch TV and put it towards this yeah or stop hanging out with your family or whatever like there's a time mm-hmm. cost mm-hmm. that you have to be okay with I haven't done you haven't done so I'm trying to get to the point of like we've all had that idea but we've not executed on so what are the do we actually want to do it? Well, I would say two things. So first, I would say I think pride plays into this more than we realize. So like, it's one thing to say I'm happy to take risks and you know go bungee jumping or do something <laughs> sure. that's just like a one-time-for-fun thing. But it's another thing to take a risk where you do something that one – like there's not an example of where you can say, oh, this is like many people are bankers. This is the way I'm a banker like them. And being an entrepreneur, like a true entrepreneur, not like me, like I'm more of a work for hire person, but a true entrepreneur who's like, I'm going to make a new thing and put it in the world takes a certain level of risking your pride. And another, I think, is that, you know, aside from pride, is just like the framework. Right now I'm working very... I'm working a lot on my own personal fitness, right? And I've had some success. I'm definitely fitter now than I was three months ago. But I didn't make up how to get fit, right? Like I I very much am following models that I've seen that were successful. So I talked to Elias about his workout. I used a workout that I used to use when I was a swimmer, you know, and then I'm taking these kind of built strategies and implementing them. And I think that's one thing that keeps these kind of -of out-of-the-box ideas from coming out. Because, like, even if McDonald's does something that's obviously wrong, 
it's much easier for me to create a business that copies what McDonald's already does. Yeah. Because there's a system in place. And it's easier because my pride is less on the line because it's not, we're going to do the Casey method. <laughs> it's going to be like, no, this is industry best practice. Yeah. Somebody else already does this. I guess it goes this. back to like, right, you're writing for websites and for magazines or whatever you're writing for. Theoretically, there's nothing from stopping you from just creating your own version of whatever website you're writing for. Totally. And I do have a blog, but there's a million things that it's nice to farm <laughs> out, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, the least fun part of making this podcast, for example, is solving the technical problems on the website, which I'm, I don't have an aptitude on. It's yep. a very simple website, but I still get stymied it's by it. It's not your skill set it's not your background totally. and the second hardest is the production part of the podcast so getting the sound right uh doing the editing after the fact and when you are a writer for a website what you do is the writing and you like a bunch of the cream is skimmed off by the time they give you your money but you don't have to do the build the prestige of this website stuff. You don't have to do the advertising. You don't have to do yeah. the hosting. You don't have to pay the startup costs, et cetera, et I think cetera, et cetera. That's, I think that's probably the key point I was trying to get to, whether it was unintentional or not, is that like my stepdad wants to create a barbecue sauce. He doesn't want to run a business, right? Yeah. Like, he wants to be the guy that owns a famous barbecue sauce. He doesn't want to do the HR, the finance, the totally. all that sort of stuff and behind it. And in his de defense, there are people who do that, but it's much less likely that you'll just get that opportunity yeah. than that you can be an entrepreneur. I'll give you another example. I would love for my band to tour. I would love to do more shows, yeah. more interviews, more press. What I don't love doing <laughs> is booking those shows, right, trying to get that press. The, exactly. Yeah. So, like, I, I've often said, and, you know, I don't particularly like the boy band style of no. music, but what a fantasy to be in in sync, yeah. right? Because you only play big crowds. You only perform like i'm sure they i'm i'm sure there's many things that are hard about that life but compared to me where like 90 percent of the music work i do is getting everybody to show up to practice carrying somebody else's drum set stuff like that whereas if you're one of the in sync guys you show up you sing maybe you do some interviews sign some autographs and then you're done yeah, and I guess it's, it's because I right. So I'll throw a you know a bunch of ideas every day at work because especially I'll be talking to I don't know an agency and they're like you know let's say a demo industry that that uh, like the people that hand out samples at different places and and they'll be like well here's what we do and this sort of thing I was like well can you do it this way and they're like no no one in the industry does it that way I was like but I'm willing to pay you to do it that way and they're and everyone says no I'm like. How hard would it be for me to create a company that does this? Because if I'm willing <laughs> to pay for it, I guarantee you other companies are as well. And I know that I, there was one. Um, if you ever been like in a public event, a festival, something like that, there's always like the people with like Red Bull handing out Red Bull. There's yeah. always people handing out Cliff bars and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Seen that. These companies are big enough where they can afford that. There are thousands of smaller companies that would be willing to pay for a tenth of that person that would walk up and give you this kind of bar and one of this type of gum and all this sort of thing. And you'd, the companies would split that cost 10 ways that ex that exists. There's people out there that hand out Red Bull that we willing to do it as well. There's just no one, no one doing it. And like, I love to be the guy that started that company. I don't have the ambition to go yeah. through all the hoops that you just talked about. 
totally. to start it. Like if you were the nephew of John Samplington, yeah. who owned the sampling company, maybe you could talk him into like try this little offshoot business, and it won't be a big risk Same to you. People you know? <laughs> like, and I, I used to do this like for the food industry. Like you go to food shows, these trade shows, and walk around and be like. You know, for on behalf of Walgreens, we have this program. Would you like to participate? It costs this much, this much, this much. If I was John Samplington <laughs> or his nephew, like get someone to walk around a trade show and do this, because I guarantee you, twenty out of the five hundred companies that are there would at least be willing to give it a shot. Yeah, they'd give you a meeting. Yeah, which is so hard to get yeah. and in like, many listen, cases, it's, especially for something like that. So small, like you know, I don't know, take Lollapalooza or whatever. Just hire five people to stand outside the different gates and literally hand out samples of different things. And maybe there's like a follow-up piece that like, hey, there's also people in here. Tell us what you thought of it. Get their email. We'll do a drawing for a $100 gift card on the back end. Whatever it may be. Like, that's simple. That's easy. It costs very little money because you're hiring five people for like, I don't know, eight, six, six hours a day. Totally. And a bunch of product, which to the company is very, very cheap. Yeah. The proof of concept is so cheap for sampling company X, which makes a million dollars, right? It's so cheap that if someone had already tried your idea, <laughs> you wouldn't know. <laughs> Probably fair. Then, like I said, these things might have been tested and proven out wrong. As someone who's in the industry, yeah, I, I, that's hard for me to believe. But like, These companies are so intransigent. Why? They're so like, yeah. we do it this way because we do it this way because we do it this way. And I, I get flack for being like, you know, people make fun of me like, oh, you have all these ideas that you wish you did and you didn't actually do it. And like... I guess I'm trying to make myself okay with the fact that I don't actually do it. I think that, you know, if you want to move past this problem, the only way to do it is that you have to kind of get practice on your not perfect idea. Because you're never going to be ready. It's never going to be the right time, blah, blah, blah. Fail a couple times and try and fail fast. Right. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's, if there's anything else you can do about that than to do it. He, I say... You know, I've having not done anything like what you're describing either. Though, you know, I've I've worked for myself. I've started websites. I've made money from little projects that I invented. You've never tried to turn it into a business, well, a company. I've never I've never been able never to filed for an no. incorporated license. And I think in a more important sense, I've never been able to make any of them like a significant enough part of my living wage. I think it's like if you make over $500, you have to, don't you? I'm so, trying to make myself okay with my guilt. Oh, I think that's like the project of human life. <laughs> it's like yeah. acquire guilt, dispose of guilt, acquire new guilt. There's no perfect decisions. So every decision has a negative consequence. Therefore, we must be okay with those negative consequences and that guilt associated with that. Okay, quick hits. So I had an idea for a quick hit that I thought might be interesting. Uh, in this Twitter age when you can kind of have access to all these people you would never be able to talk to in the past, I find myself getting more and more excited about what I think of as like, you know, G-list celebrities, like non-famous, <laughs> famous people. So like... Why, can I... Can I why? Why? Well, A-list celebrities don't do it for you? <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? Like, let's say I was obsessed with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Sure. The most I could expect is that maybe he'd, like, write me back an email. The fact right? that 
Joe Schmo might actually respond to your question makes him all even more intriguing. Huge, to you. Yeah. huge. So let me start with an example of an author, and I feel bad calling anyone that I really like a G-list celebrity, but I think that they, for the most part, would understand. If you that can this go a whole fun. week without anyone recognizing you on the street, you're a you're a G-list celebrity. Totally. So like Corey Doctorow, very popular in his world, science fiction writer. But when I read an article by him that I like. If I write him like a paragraph about it that I'm like, hey, did you consider this? <laughs> it's very possible that he'll write me back really? and be like, okay, cool. oh, this is why I didn't put that in the yeah. article because actually that's been disproven yeah. or whatever. Like to, to start kind of like a hall of champions of the G-list celebrity, <laughs> I think I could start with, and he's almost too famous to be a perfect uh, example of this, but I'll start with Corey Doctorow. Okay. So I, I gave you this concept. Did, were you able to think of any yeah, non-famous famous uh, people? So, like, kind of hard for me, and I was trying to think of it. Obviously, like, Ultimate Frisbee has celebrities. I don't really care for many of them. Um, okay, <laughs> cool. So uh, they don't get into the Hall of Champions. They don't get in. Um, I think your point, like, writers are the easiest for this, right? Because writing is faceless. Yeah. Um, my favorite writer right now, and if people listen to podcasts, is probably Chris Ryan for The Ringer. I read everything he puts out. I and like it's his like opinions. entertainment stuff or like criticism he, stuff? He, he runs the triangle or the old triangle from um, uh, Grantland. Uh, so he does sports. He does sports writing okay. for the most part. Uh, but he also does a couple different podcasts. Uh, check out on the, on the Ringer Network or whatever the, they're calling it these but days. But he's not like uh, – he's not like – Bill Simmons or somebody the, you would know. the Game of Thrones after show. That's the only reason <laughs> people would actually, like, recognize his face. Uh, but, yeah, like, I, all the podcasts he does, all the writing he does, I, it just he reminds me of so many of my friends that, like, it's a little <laughs> bit of an echo chamber. You listen to people you agree with, right? And, like, his opinions <laughs> I tend to agree with. Totally. And I think, like, listening to you talk about him, like like, the way he presents himself and the way he presents his podcast is very interesting. So, like... Making a podcast, we're always trying to steal stuff. Yeah. Like, we definitely have talked about, like, what does he do that we like, and can we... Yeah, he's a little that? bit of what Bill Simmons used to be. Mm. Like, he's very, very similar to where Bill Simmons was when he kind of broke in, where he's writing about sports with a pop culture angle, mm -hmm. uh, and, mm -hmm. like, enthusiasm and that sort of stuff. So, th that's how me and my friends talk about sports. Okay, so now that we're talking about writers, I have to do another one. There's a guy called Nathan Rabin, and he used to write all the hip-hop reviews for The Onion. Oh, my God. Good. I probably have five albums, three of which I don't like because he wrote good reviews of them because they were like a good review shouldn't just like tell you if you like if you're going to like this or not. It should like teach you yeah. like this is what you should be paying attention to in hip hop. This is what this person yeah. is actually talking about. This is the lineage that this style comes from. Hip hop is so... Because it's so lyrically dense and because, like, some of the relationships are so obvious and some of them are a little bit more obscure, it's great to have kind of, like, a decoder. Yeah. And, man, no, Nathan Rabin. I think I wrote a blog post about him in, like, 2009. I was that into that, dude. <laughs> so I would definitely nominate him for Hall of Champions, C-list yeah. Celebrities. Like, on top of our, like, music, this is happens all the time, right? Like, your underground musician yeah, no, you, no. you love, right? Um, mine, for a while, has been this guy named Holt, H-X-L-T. Uh, <laughs> I hate him already. Uh, he just signed with Good Music, Kanye's label, so, like, he's uh -huh. gonna blow up. I've seen him four times in the last year, year and a half. 
the last show I went to was album release party for the good music label. It had 60 people at it, right? Like for yeah, a dude that signed with good music to have an album release party with like 60, 70 people at it. His it's shows nothing. are, he's from Chicago, like bananas. He, he's a hip hop artist, but has a full band on stage. Like it's a little more electric guitar rap version, uh, hybrid. And his shows are, he, his energy and his live shows are better than his music. But so, yeah, there are, but yeah there if you're in Chicago, like check out Holt. Awesome. And do you feel like if you like sent him a White Sox hat and were like, sign this for my kid, oh, yeah. he would send it, it back to you? I After he got, well, the person, the opener was on, he was hanging out. I was like, hey, man. Like, yeah, <laughs> I talked to like, because he just like wandered out during the opener and like maybe half the 60 people actually recognized him, right? Totally. This you bet. Like, I've been to your shows. Like, you'll go out in the crowd absolutely. during whatever, you know, if you're opening or if you're headlining. <laughs> If we're not, if we just played, I try and judge whether people would be grossed out if I hug them when I'm super sweaty. And if they wouldn't be, <laughs> I just hug everybody in the crowd. Because it's like, oh my God, somebody came. Bless you. Bless you. All right. Yeah, when, you, when you opened for Gene Ween, there was, yes. <laughs> you were pretty sweaty. <laughs> oh, every time. I was so sweaty that my glasses flew off my face. <laughs> Because like I was like I tried to do a you know a rock star move and turn like snap my head fast sure. and I straight shot my glasses yeah. and it didn't have an effect like oh that guy's really into it I heard somebody gasp and be like oh watch out <laughs> <laughs> okay then I jump from G list celebrities and we may touch on these when we think of more good ones but uh, so we were talking about mentors and how like mentors especially if they're too senior can have kind of irrelevant or bad advice <laughs> for you. Of course. And you had a or, couple or of these. Or if they're your age. <laughs> we, don't need to, we don't need to limit it. Crap they might old have people. Old, yeah, older people might have outdated yeah. advice. So, so bad advice. You, you had a couple of them. Yeah, the, well, the, the, I think part of the reason you let off with you know older people that have been in industry for a while. One of the ones I tend to hear all the time is it's a relationship business, which is true, like, if a buyer or someone you're selling to doesn't like you, they will not buy from you. That being said, if I come in like a giant, not nice person, but I put a, you know, a, a sales case in front of them that makes more sense than whoever I'm coming in after me, they're starting from a higher point. But at the end of the day, they're going to kind of look back and say, listen, I don't like that guy, but this is still the right decision for me, for my business, whatever it is. There are some buyers out there that will buy for their friends. But I think the industries and most industries are changing quickly to be more numbers based mm. um, and less because like we've just become better statistically as a country It's yeah. because people want to when they when something goes wrong, mm -hmm. like if uh, Walmart puts a new product into their store and it fails, mm -hmm. they want to go back and when their boss says, why did you put this in, you dummy, they say, well. Here's the numbers that I was given. Here's the statistic case I made. Because it's hard to argue with logic. It's easy to argue against friendship. And if, totally. the, person, if the person says, I put it in because that, that dude's my buddy and bought me a trip to Hawaii. No. That's yeah. not going to go Boss well on the back that. end. Totally. I, I think that's interesting that, that you see that as a trend. Because it, it makes so much sense. It's like, why hasn't it always been that way? But I think you're absolutely right that oh it is God. a trend. So many industries, you know, the reason Ford had certain types of mud flaps forever was just because, like, they're, they're, that just happens. Like, if you ask why grocery stores have pro certain products on the shelf that you know just are going to fail, or why 
why a certain company made road signs versus another one, it's a good chance the dude at City Hall <laughs> knew, that knew guy. a dude, right? Like that, and that's going away, right? Now totally. it's becoming more to what they call an RFP process, a request for proposal, yeah. where they'll say, hey, Formalized. we want new road signs. We want at Put least in your bids. a document that we can point at and say, this is why this was supposed to work. Here it was thought out and put in writing. So I'll give you one, and I'll try and make it quick. My father said to me early on in my career, you should not think about your starting salary. Like your starting salary is almost unimportant. And I think what he meant by this, what, and, and what he went on to say was, you should say, pay me what you want. I'm going to show you what I'm worth. And then you're going to have to pay me that much. And I think that is not necessarily a bad strategy, but in an important way, it's gone out of date. In yeah, my father's generation, the number of companies you expend, expected to work for and the amount of tenure you expected to acquire was so different from what it is now. Yeah. And I, I, the last thing I would tell to anybody is like, hey, don't take a job unless it's gold-plated and <laughs> sure. you're always worth more. No, you can absolutely be too cocky and you know negotiate yourself out of a great opportunity i've seen people do it oh absolutely but at the same time whatever the deal is whatever's in writing that's all you're necessarily going to get you may get more but you never want to be in a place where you're like hey they could fire me but they'll have to pay me six months afterwards because that's industry standard well i've been in a place where something similar to that i had a i was already there Got an offer from somewhere else for more money. And they say, well, we'll get you halfway there now. And then six months from now, we'll get you the other half. Yeah. My boss left a month later. Yeah. I did not ever get that other half. Totally. And in that situation, nobody lied to you. No. Right? No, there was no underhanded dealing. But the truth is that the future is the future. And especially in a world where there's less connection, you're going to move around more. And I, I want to say again that I temper this like, I've gotten so much great advice from my dad that it's easy for me to find one or two pieces that didn't work. I, I also want to say, like, you know, don't – it's better to be working than not working. You know, I'd rather in many cases take the suboptimal job and find the optimal job. But if you think that your starting salary doesn't matter, it's because you imagine you're going to be there and have a not starting salary. We – I people our age, 30 and under – have had a lot of jobs where yeah. your starting salary was your finishing was your salary. salary. And it's not because you were a jerk or did something bad. The dating advice I always hate is be yourself. <laughs> like, well, if you're me, you can. But <laughs> if, if you're, you're you. If you're a great person like Casey Brazil, <laughs> yeah, dude, just be yourself, man. Listen, we dress ourselves up to go to work. We dress ourselves up to mm. – um, we change our language when we're around your, our parents. Like – there's nothing wrong with being a better you. I but don't see. like don't like dress it up and like rent a car and a you know yeah. be someone like so far away from who you mm -hmm. are. But like be okay with being putting on a better show for dates for work for whatever it is for first impressions all this sort of stuff. Don't always be yourself. You can well, keep it too real. I know. And the, the the back half of it is like there's this new Gen X thinking that's like, if people don't like you, that's they're like, F them. Like, no, no. If people don't <laughs> like you, like, yeah, if, if like a dude trolls you on Twitter, like, who cares? Yeah. F them. I get But it. if nobody likes you. <laughs> it's probably you. <laughs> right? If people, if people don't treat you well, 
Hey, take, take a self-check once yeah, in a while. Totally. I love that. I, I love that idea. You push me to the thinking of like thinking of another podcast of uh, Jalen Rose being like, when you're dating someone, you're not dating them. You're dating their representative. <laughs> and I think you have to like that's that's, that's not a, expected. Not a, people think that's a bad thing. But nah, it's, it's not. not at all. And then, like I said, the other part of the, well, if they, if they didn't like me for who I am, then blah, blah, blah. Like, still back, back up a little bit, right? Totally. Everything within reason, everything in moderation. Like, I should show you the respect that if I'm going on a date with you, I'm trying to get there on time. I'm trying to look all right. I'm trying to not stink, whatever. The, the whole, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. You got a story? It doesn't always work. I got work. a good story from... Sunday, I'm hanging out with my friend. Goes on a, he's not gonna listen to this. So <laughs> there's no worries. He uh, he goes on a Tinder date Saturday night. Is is hooking up with a girl. Gets a a work call. Answers the call while mid make out sesh. And he basically said to her, he's like, "It's my job. If you can't handle it now, we're not gonna handle it." I was like, "Come on, man! One time, one time first, first time." Yeah, that your friend is not a romantic. No. No. Even if you're not a romantic, try and be a romantic a little bit on the first time. <laughs> and with that, I think we can put a cap on this excellent episode. Absolutely. We'll see you. Uh, change your Amazon bookmarks on your computers. Woo! Thanks, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>